This episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast is brought to you by our friends at the Law Enforcement Today radio show. Check out the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast, which started as a podcast in 2017. It's a syndicated radio show broadcasting to millions of people every week. Crime and or trauma stories from those that have been there. Hosted by a retired police sergeant. Find the Law Enforcement Today podcast on major podcast platforms or online at letradioshow.com. That's letradioshow.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. Tiger Woods made his professional PGA Tour debut at the Greater Milwaukee Open four days after winning his third consecutive U.S. Amateur Championship this year. I guess, hello world, huh? (laughs) First tournament as a professional, Tiger Woods. Um, There's really nothing for me to accomplish in amateur golf. It's time to move on, test my game uh, out here. Um, I know I'm I'm good enough to do it. It's just a matter of uh, doing it. A victory would be awfully nice, too. <laughs> wow, this thing is launched. A mile in the air, just right of the flag. This year, Atlanta, Georgia was the host of the Summer Olympics. A century ago, a 29-year-old Frenchman gave voice to a fragile, ambitious idea, powerful enough to unite the world. His name, Pierre de Coubertin. His idea, to restore the Olympics after an absence of 1,500 years. Tonight, a record 197 countries have come to Atlanta for the Centennial Olympic Games. And the Centennial Park bombing at these Summer Olympics killed two and injured 111. 125 this morning, thousands of revelers at an open-air rock concert in Centennial Park. sudden I felt a big boom, a blast, heat came, and then it knocked me off the wall and blew my pants off here. Move up the street! Everybody needs to move up the street! Authorities said the device appeared to be a pipe bomb loaded with nails and screws designed to penetrate human flesh. More than 100 people have been injured. Two are dead. Before this device explodes, security guard Richard Jewell notices this backpack alerts a law enforcement officer, and they begin to evacuate the area. If not for his quick thinking, there probably would have been many more casualties. The year was 1996. People in Minnesota were still talking about the cold temperatures they'd experienced this past winter. In February, the state would record its coldest air temperature ever 
minus 60 degrees in Tower, Minnesota. These extreme temperatures create some really spectacular events. In the right conditions, the air is filled with tiny ice crystals called diamond dust. These are so small that they drift through the air for a while before settling to the ground. As a result, the air glitters everywhere you look. At this temperature, you get thick layers of ice growing on the interiors of double-paned windows in your homes. Sometimes, your doors will freeze shut. Sometimes you'll hear creaks and pops from the walls of your house as the building materials in it contract and settle because of the temperature. When you open up the front door to go outside and you let that blast of frigid air in your home, it sucks the moisture out of the house and it turns into a rolling fog. Vehicles won't start. Schools are all closed. Water lines start freezing to your home. Sewer lines start freezing from your home. Even your city water tower can freeze during these extreme cold temperatures. Fast forward to May. It was finally spring in Minnesota. Skies were cloudy with a light breeze and temperatures in the mid-50s in the south-central county of Rice County. Troy Dunn retired from Rice County as their sheriff in 2021 and was a young patrol deputy for the county back in 1996. In 1996, we had 23 licensed deputies. That included the sheriff and chief deputy and two sergeants, one patrol sergeant, one investigative sergeant. And we had uh, two jails at the time, a 36-bed downtown jail that was built a long time ago and been retrofitted a number of times, held 36 people. And then we uh, opened an annex up at the um, new Fairwell Prison. We leased a building from the state and we had our work release uh, annex up there. And uh, when you got hired with the sheriff's office, you always had to start in jail and then you would get promoted out. That's how it was up until 19, about 1996, we hired our first outside deputy that didn't come through the jail. Like the others, Troy started as a jailer or a detention deputy, hoping to work his way up to patrol. So a deputy would give the jailers a break and you could go home if you lived in town. So then you'd take a squad, run home and eat or whatever, and the deputy would sit in jail for you while you're covering um, and stuff like that. And I would, uh, I would stop cars if I'd see something flagrant, I'd stop cars and I'd come back to the jail with a drunk driver and they're like, you're a jailer, you're not supposed to be arresting people. But I was still licensed. And so I, I had Jim Anderson would say, don't stop any cars. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm in pursuit, County Road 19. <laughs> Troy was a young, enthusiastic deputy just out of college. He was excited to start his full-time career on the road. John Warren Liebenstein was another deputy serving there in Rice County. John was 40 years old at the time and had served with the Rice County Sheriff's Office for nine years, starting in the jail, then patrol, and most recently as an investigator. So how I met John is Dave Schweistall, the sheriff, um, when I was going to Alex, um, 
I went and introduced myself and, you know, I never had any run-ins with the sheriff's office and no negative things and just said, hey, sheriff, you know, wondering if you got any spots open. He goes, well, if you want to be a special deputy, I need guys to work dances and stuff like that. And so that's how I met John Liebenstein. John Liebenstein and I were both special deputies for the sheriff's office in the late 80s, and we would work dances primarily at the Northfield Ballroom. And there would be three or four of us and the place was packed and almost every, you know, time we worked, there would be some fights and uh, college town. And then you've got, you know, college town butted up to the South Metro, butted up rural, you know, Minnesota. And, you know, sometimes the farm boys and the city slickers didn't always get along. And so that's how I got to meet John, and uh, we became friends. And then uh, that's how we found out that you did a good job there. Then Dave would give you an opportunity later on if you, you know, okay, you want to apply for the sheriff's office, you get hired in the jail. And then if you, you know, did okay in the jail, then you get promoted out to the road. And so that was the progression that John and I went through. He started, you know, probably two years earlier than me as a special deputy because John was farming and then he got his degree in law enforcement and uh, said, you know, I, I need to do something where I get some benefits for my family and still be able to farm a little bit. So that's how he got into that career, um, where I just came right out of high school. And, and uh, that's how our paths crossed. And uh, John was a big boy, big farm boy. He's strong as an ox, but yet he was very soft-spoken and could talk to people and talk people down. But if things got out of hand it was sure nice to have him there with you know two tree trunks for arms and and just picking people up and helping us break up these large fights and stuff like that john and gene started dating right after high school in 1974 john and i met in june of 1974 and it was a blind date that was set up by a mutual friend of, of ours and um I mean, it was, was Jim and his girlfriend at the time and John and me then that went to a concert together and um, had a fantastic time. And then, you know, a few days later, he's calling me for a date. So that's, that's how it went. <laughs> so he grew up in Dundas, which Dundas is a small farm community between Faribault and Northfield, the two big towns in Rice County. You know, Faribault's 25,000, uh, Northfield's 20,000 population. Dundas is about 1,000 people. Back then, it was probably, you know, 800. But uh, a very rural farming community, you know, had the feed mill in town, a couple bars, a couple churches. And, and John, actually, John's family farm was right out near the interstate um, at County Road 1 and uh, I-35. That was his family farm. And then he bought and moved his family into a small farmstead, hobby farm, I guess you would call it, about two miles from his, his uh, home farm where he grew up. John married Jean on August 16, 1980. They would eventually move to the country to raise their kids in rural Rice County. We had purchased the farm that his grandparents had owned. And his, his grandmother died in 1986, and so we bought, it was an 80-acre farm. We bought that in 1987 and moved there, so we bought that from the estate. And that's where we raised our children then. One interesting fact about both John and Troy is neither of them drank coffee. Yeah, he was diabetic. So you'd see John walk into the office and he'd have a briefcase in one hand and a 
case of uh, Diet Mountain Dew cans and the other. That was his coffee. Um, that was his, uh, you know, drink of choice. And, and uh, you know, that was the first time I really remember because, you know, as, as a young deputy, you come in and back in the day, it just seemed like all the officers drank coffee and a lot of the officers smoked. And all of a sudden, here comes in another uh, kind of a new generation. And I'm like, no, I don't smoke and I, I hate coffee. <laughs> and so I, I'm drinking Pepsi and, and uh, Diet or Mountain Dew. And, and then John's like, well, I know that sugar's not good for you either. You need to drink this Diet Mountain Dew. And then uh, all of a sudden, that's, you know, I would bring a six pack on my night shift. Uh, that was my coffee for the night. And after a physical or something, they're like, you drink coffee? Do you drink, what do you, for caffeine? I said, well, you know, I probably drink a six pack of diet. They're like, what? You can't, that's not good. You, you need to, you need to cut way back. Well, John does, John brings it a case. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that was, that was, that was funny. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, John, for, for your gift of diet Mountain Dew. John was everybody's friend, and he always had a smile on his face. He, you know, you very rarely, I would maybe see a few few of the, the sad stories or the sad face looks, but, you know, always had a smile, always greeted people, was helpful. You know, he'd jump in the car and run over to a neighbor's house if they needed help with something. You know, he, he, was, he, was, he was like this rock, but he was also a big teddy bear. And I know a lot of people described him as a big teddy bear. He had that soft spot. Very much a family man. You know, family was important to him, along with, with close friends. But he knew everybody in the world, and I think that was one of the things that made him so popular is he went to high school in Northfield, so he knew all these people in Northfield. We went to church in Northfield, but then his family church was in Faribault, so he knew all these people in Faribault, plus he worked in Faribault. So, <laughs> you know, he knew, he knew the county. He knew the whole county. John quickly worked his way up the ranks to investigators. And he was one of those guys who was always there to help. He was a guy that you could always count on. He was great with people. He could talk to anybody. And people were comfortable with him. They were comfortable talking to him. He had a way of, I don't know, ferreting out information, you know, when he was investigating a case. And, you know, given a chance to think, he he knew the questions to ask to get answers for, which, you know, makes makes a good investigator. John was one of those guys who could talk to you man-to-man without judgment. He could get you to take ownership for your mistakes and help direct you into a direction that would help find more closure for the victims. He was just as comfortable talking to suspects as he was victims. He was just a giving, caring person who loved his family, he loved his community, and just wanted to be there to help. Rice County is in central Minnesota. It's home to just over 67,000 residents. It's located on U.S. Interstate 35 that runs from the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area south through Iowa, Kansas, and Missouri to Kansas City before it starts to veer southwest through Kansas, Oklahoma, and ending almost 1,400 miles later in Laredo, Texas. Having a busy U.S. highway running through your county can create unique challenges for a county sheriff's office. Rice County butts up to the seven-county metro area, so we're on the south side of it. 
And we don't have all of the resources like you hear about or you see about in the media and, and such that the metro departments have. So we are outstate Minnesota, which means State Patrol does not have 24-7 on-call coverage or on-the-road coverage. So at 3 in the morning, when the trooper goes home, or the, if, they're, if we're lucky enough to have two troopers, they would go home. Then the interstate was up to Rice County to respond to calls on. We could call troopers back and such like that. But the thing with Interstate 35, that's 24-7, 365. You always have truck traffic. You always have people going to and from work. You have people going to and from other locations. So that brings us a lot of business, not only traffic-related, but crime-related. You would get the people pulling off the interstate, um, you know, coming down from the metro, do a a quick robbery at at the truck stop or at a store, and then they could jump back on the interstate and take off. So, you know, that interstate brought a lot of business for the Rice County Sheriff's Office and in the communities within Rice County. It was Friday, May 3rd, 1996, in Prior Lake, Minnesota. Prior Lake is considered an ex-urban city, 20 miles southwest of Minneapolis in Scott County, Minnesota, about 35 miles north and west of Rice County. An ex-urban area, or exurb, is considered an area outside the typically denser inner suburban area of a metropolitan area. An area that has an economic and commuting connection to the metro area, which in this case would be the Minneapolis-St. Paul Twin Cities metro area. Prior Lake Police Officer Wade Erickson was dispatched to the Priordale Mall to take a stolen vehicle report. There, a man explained that he had parked his 1991 Candy Apple Red Lincoln Town Car for a brief time over the lunch hour, but he'd left the keys on the seat and when he returned, the car was gone. While Officer Wade was taking the stolen report, Scott County Sergeant Rittmeyer, who was also on patrol that day, ran a license plate of a vehicle that matched the stolen vehicle, occupied by one male driver. Earlier that morning, 17-year-old Timothy Chambers, a junior at the Alternative School in Chaska, didn't want to go to school. He told his mother he was sick. He didn't feel good. He stayed home while his mother went to work. And around noon, he left his house and walked to TJ Hooligans to fill out a job application. TJ Hooligans was a local pub located in the Priordale Mall. After leaving Hooligans, Chambers was walking through the parking lot when he came across a red Lincoln Town Car with keys on the seat. He saw that as an opportunity. Shortly after Sergeant Rittmeyer ran the plate and determined it was the stolen vehicle being reported at the Priordale Mall, Deputy Donald Buchan responded to assist Rittmeyer in stopping the vehicle. They were at the intersection of County Road 42 and McKenna Road with Chambers in the driver's seat of the stolen Lincoln. While sitting at the intersection, Chambers suddenly accelerated. He rammed the rear of the deputy squad car with the Lincoln. He drove around it and he took off. Sergeant Rittmeyer advised they were in pursuit now. 
eastbound on County Road 42 from County Highway 17, just a few miles northwest of the mall where the car was stolen. Chambers had seen his share of trouble. He had a history of drug abuse, had stolen multiple vehicles in the past, and had been kicked out of school a number of times. He'd been in and out of state institutions since he was 12 or 13 years old, according to family members. Chambers had a history of being manipulative and violent with a short temper. Chambers had made threats in the past that no cop would take him alive, that he would never go back to the St. Croix camp. Officer Erickson, who had been taking the stolen report, advised dispatch that he would head towards County Highway 21 and County Highway 42. At one point, Prior Lake officers told dispatch to let Scott County know that the driver of the stolen vehicle could be a suspect their agency and the FBI had been searching for. The pursuit continued east on 42 to Interstate 35 and then south out of the metro area, speeding, colliding with other vehicles. The driver in the stolen Lincoln was doing everything he could to get away from law enforcement. Minnesota state troopers who were on duty that day and monitoring the pursuit were now trying to get into position to set up a moving roadblock on I-35 to try and contain the suspect. The stolen vehicle was now about one mile north of the Dundas exit, traveling at speeds of 85 to 90 miles per hour, driving erratically, taking the median, and going around vehicles in an attempt to lose law enforcement. It was now 1.06 p.m. They had just entered Rice County, and additional state troopers and deputies were there, trying to get into position to help with the pursuit, including Dakota County Deputy Eric Ramstead, who was the third squad in the pursuit. As the pursuit came into the Burnsville-Lakeville city border, Lakeville police officer Michael Parks also joined the pursuit. Conrad Peterson was an over-the-road trucker. He was a driver for Byerly's Grocery and was southbound on I-35 in Rice County when he noticed another truck driver in the right lane of traffic trying to get him to slow down. He did, and he realized a pursuit was coming up behind them. These two semi-drivers did what they could to help slow down the pursuit, driving side-by-side -side down I-35. Other truckers were talking on the CB about the chase and that state troopers were trying to set up a rolling roadblock. That morning started out like any other morning at the Liebenstein residence. Just that morning when he went to work, we, we were discussing, you know, what we had going on for the weekend and what we wanted to accomplish. And then he gave me a kiss goodbye and left for work. He left usually about well, maybe a half hour before I did. So he left and, and that was the last I talked to him. Jean had gone to work that morning in Northfield. John went to work at the sheriff's office. It was now lunchtime, and John had gone home to take his lunch break when he heard the pursuit on the radio. As Jean said, John was always there to assist. He always wanted to help, and today was no different. He jumped into his unmarked green Ford Crown Victoria, and he headed towards I-35. John arrived at the County Road 1 exit, which is the Dundas exit, on I-35. He was only a couple miles from his home. 
John was waiting for the pursuit when he heard the Scott County deputy advise that the suspect was taking the Dundas exit. John then got on the radio and said, This is Rice County 115. I'm on County Road 1. I'll help with the roadblock. Let's see which way this guy wants to go. John positioned his squad at the top of the exit ramp, sideways, facing west, blocking the right portion of the roadway with the passenger door facing the ramp. Back in those days, it was common practice to do partial roadblocks. Back in the day, it was like if there was a pursuit, you'd want it to end as quickly and safely as possible. And I think the mindset back in the 80s and 90s were that if you get marked squads out there or even unmarked squads, but you can see the flashing light, that that's going to be a deterrent and that's going to hopefully say, okay, the gig's up and and we're going to stop or, you know, we, we don't want these pursuits, especially on the interstate, it was always told to me, you don't want these pursuits to come into our towns where the population is more, you have people walking around, stuff like that. So it was very common for pursuits to come out of the metro area down into our area. We did not have the stop stick. We, we were just starting to, you know, try some of the things. I had, I think I was one of the first deputies that had the kind that rolled out. It was like a tire, but you rolled it out. And then you had to turn a switch like you're setting off a bomb <laughs> to get the things to pop up. And so we would try to, you know, put squads at the ramps to deter them from coming in onto those areas to keep it basically on the interstate. You know, a lot of times, especially if there's a lot of traffic, cars would get caught behind semi-tractors or, you know, semi-drivers would see it coming and they would kind of, you know, run side by side so they couldn't get around and, and then we would be able to box them in and get it slowed down and stop so and then the other thing that we did that wasn't always probably the safest thing to do but we did it quite regularly was the rolling roadblocks where we'd box them in and just try to pinch them in between a bunch of squad cars to stop them back then you'd position your squad car blocking half of the lane to force the fleeing vehicle towards the shoulder or ditch in an attempt to get them to slow down and hopefully stop while you always left enough room for the suspect vehicle to get around you like John did. The point was to try and stop the pursuit. Deputy Buchan then observed the Lincoln pass the two semi-trucks on the left-hand median, then he swerved across both lanes of traffic and then up onto the County Road 1 exit ramp. The deputy could see a green-colored car at the top of the ramp. He watched as the Lincoln accelerated up the ramp, never hitting the brakes, headed towards the green car, John's unmarked squad car. Then, the deputy described the crash as an explosion as the Lincoln crashed into the passenger side of the green Ford Crown Victoria. Next thing dispatch hears is the Scott County deputy keying up his mic and saying, Watch out! Then, with a panic in his voice, he advised, He took a squad head on. Officer down. Get an ambulance. As officers arrived, they could see the Lincoln had crushed the passenger side of the Green Crown Vic, pushing it approximately 200 feet off the roadway at the corner of County Road 1 and I-35. Running to the crash, they could see a body lying just to the left of the cars, face down, a badge visible on his belt. John had been ejected from the squad on impact. The theory was he was trying to get out of the car and get away before he was struck by Chambers. 
Officers carefully rolled John over. John's eyes were slightly open, pupils dilated and fixed. He was not breathing and there was no pulse. Officers immediately started to administer oxygen and CPR, but quickly determined due to his injuries that he was dead. There was nothing they could do. There were media helicopters flying overhead and the officers there didn't want them photographing or video recording John. So they covered him with a yellow plastic sheet and waited for the ambulance. Chambers was still seated in the driver's seat of the Lincoln. He was conscious and appeared disoriented. He was handcuffed to the steering wheel, waiting for medical. There were now multiple agencies on scene, and Rice County would be calling in off-duty deputies to assist. Retired Rice County Sheriff Troy Dunn was one of those off-duty deputies that day. I had worked the night before. I was working like uh, six to two. So I was done, got up, and you know, was just kind of hanging out at, at my house, getting ready to you know, go back to work in a few hours. And then I got a call saying that there was a bad crash and that John John's squad was hit. And um, so I just quick jumped in my squad and buzzed up there. When Troy got to the crash, he knew it wasn't good. I see emergency vehicles like, you know, you, you'd expect that there was something you see on TV like New York City or Minneapolis where you multiple squad cars, fire trucks, ambulances, and all that. Just a mob of lights is, is what I see as I come up. And I, I remember, you know, getting up there and weaving around, uh, getting to the scene. And the first thing I see as I, I get up to the scene is I see a stretcher coming from south west corner of the intersection uh, with emergency firefighters, paramedics, deputies around this and a firefighter on top uh, straddling the stretcher doing CPR and and then I was stopped by my chief deputy and he just hugged me and says it's not good and that was John being taken to the ambulance and then the sheriff came up to me and that's the first time <clears throat> I remember seeing both um, my sheriff and chief deputy, well, I shouldn't say the first time, first time at a scene where I was out there where I saw them both that emotional because they were both very stoic, very matter-of-fact, very, you know, not, not, not touchy-feely at all. And to see them both with tears in their eyes and everything, you know, it was, uh, you know, very sad, surreal, very surreal. I watched them put John in the ambulance and the ambulance take off code three. And then I said, we're, you know, is there anybody else hurt? And they said, well, we have the driver of the other car. We're waiting for an ambulance for him. And so he was sitting in the back seat of a squad car with a couple firemen tending to you know, some injuries, and uh, he just, you know, looked like he was in a crash, but he just looked very, uh, you know, unconcerned, like he was just pissed off at the world, and and and, and uh, that's where I remember emotions going through me, because they said that he had come up the interstate in this pursuit and hit John as he was trying to bail out of the car. 
And then I remember a trooper saying he accelerated up the ramp. He did not brake. And so, you know, now you're thinking, you know, you just killed my partner, one of my partners, but we have to be professional and do the right thing. And, and, you know, even though you're feeling all these emotions, like you just want to go up and grab them and, you know, punch them and say, what the heck are you thinking? And, but obviously, you know, we, we don't do that. We can't do that. And we're not going to have a job if we do that. Northfield Rescue and Ambulance administered care to Chambers and then transported him to Northfield Hospital. He was then transported to Ramsey County Medical Center for further observation and once cleared, transported to the Carver County Juvenile Detention Center. I would say it was, you know, probably 20 minutes after I got there, after I saw him go in code three. And to the hospital from that location is is probably about a 10-minute drive. And then, uh, you know, a trooper and one of our deputies followed the ambulance up to the hospital. And then that same sergeant that called me was the one that called back and said that he had died. <sighs> but, um, yeah, so then there was just like, you know, hugs, hugs, <clears throat> everybody hugging one another. Well, you, you know, the ones that you work with every day and then, you know, strangers, just, um, you know, Metro troopers coming up to you, you know, consoling you in Lakeville and Dakota County. And I mean, there is, there are squads there from all over the place, you know. <clears throat> yeah, you know, all the firemen, you know, all the firemen from Northfield Fire and, you know, some of them grew up, you know, going to school with John and, you know, so it was, uh, yeah, it was a, that was a big hit and then it seemed like th- this one I don't want to minimize the you know we had just lost Terry Hansen about a year and a half earlier in a pursuit same thing but except he had a heart attack after the pursuit after a squad was rammed but I didn't know Terry you know as well as I knew John you know John and I started working out dances together so um, Terry came from Faribault Police Department to the Sheriff's Office. You knew him, and I knew him from church and stuff like that. But it, it, this one just, I, maybe it's because I was there, too, you know. It, it stung that much more. And then I just thought of John's kids, you know. He had a son and two daughters, and they were all, you know, young. Um, elementary school, and, um, and I just remember showing up at the house and hugging them all later. Um, so, and then still having to go through and work your shift too, you know. Arguably, one of the toughest jobs in law enforcement is death notifications. It's just something that you never forget, and it's something you never get used to. It's hard enough doing notifications to strangers, but to do a notification to a fellow officer's spouse is brutal. The Rice County Sheriff was the one to notify Gene of the crash. I was sitting at my desk and the um, director of HR came up to me and said that Dave Schweistall was there and wanted to talk to me and it had to do with my husband. And so for some reason, I I grabbed my purse and and followed him and they took me to a a small conference room that was um, just off the lobby of the building that I was in. 
and that's when Dave told me what had happened. In law enforcement, we're trained to be compassionate and to be caring but also to be direct and to the point when doing death notifications. We're trained to avoid using vague terms to describe death. Phrases such as passed away or didn't survive or didn't make it. These terms can make things confusing for the survivor when clarity is really what's important. Everyone reacts to this news differently. For some, it may take several minutes for the traumatic news to sink in. Some may become quiet, some may yell and scream, some may become violent, some may need medical attention. It's a heartbreaking experience for the officer and the family involved, and you never know how people are going to respond. Jean, understandably, was in shock, and she still had to tell her kids that their dad was dead. The kids were seven, nine, and 12 years old. You know, I was almost that feeling of being ill. Um, and I just remember being so numb and having a hard time thinking what my next step should be. And um, it ended up then that they called a couple of my friends and then one friend took me home and the other friend drove my car home. And then once I got home, then it was, you know, then all of a sudden I'm thinking of the kids because they're still in school. It sounded like at the time, and I'm not sure if it was the superintendent or if it was the principal of one of the schools that pulled the kids off the school bus. And then somebody from the sheriff's department went and picked them up and brought them home. The reconstruction of the crash determined that Chambers was traveling at between 93 and 98 miles per hour when he ran into John's squad. The reconstruction also determined that Chambers was given ample room by John to go around him, about 12 feet. However, Chambers chose to ram John's squad, and he never hit the brakes. The damage to John's car and the stolen Lincoln showed Chambers purposely rammed John's car. The damage was so well-centered that the wheels of the Crown Vic were undamaged, yet the passenger compartment was crushed. The damage to the Lincoln was all to the front end, with the wheels crushed in place, facing straight ahead. Chambers was indicted on four counts, murder in the first degree of a peace officer, murder in the second degree while committing a felony, theft of a motor vehicle, and fleeing a peace officer in a motor vehicle causing death. On Tuesday, May 7th, over 2,000 mourners attended John's funeral in Northfield. It was held at the uh, uh, one of the Lutheran churches in Northfield, a Lutheran church, and it was just packed. And all the sheriff's office staff took turns standing guard at uh, John's casket and just seeing the uh, volumes of people, both from Rice County and then officers from all over, you know, that came to pay their respects. And then, uh, you know, that was a very long day. Um, but it was heartwarming to see the support for the family. It was just so perfect, you know, I mean, for, for such a tragedy, but to see the support. And I, I still remember um, <clears throat> Jean, uh, John's wife and, and artist, his mom saying, this is just amazing. She's like, I'm so tired, but I don't want to, I, I don't want to leave anybody waiting in line that came all this way, you know, and, and then, uh, 
I <clears throat> I remember the uh, procession out there, and you know, just the miles of, of squad cars, emergency vehicles, emergency services, and um, going from Northfield out to Rolling Green Cemetery, which was you know close to where John lived, and having to park out on the county road and then um, walk in as a department with John's casket and uh, back to the gravesite and, uh, you know, putting your hand on the casket and, and uh, just everybody was, everybody had their sunglasses on, sunny day out there, but you could still see the tears just rolling out from behind them. The big pipes out there in that cemetery were just so, um, it was just, uh, I hate to use the same word, but it was surreal. It was just so, um, ah, it, you know, it just, it just, um, your heart sank and um, it, it was just kind of like, this was our, um, our uh, excuse me. Our final goodbye to John. John was buried in Rolling Greens Cemetery, west of Northfield in Rice County. A year after the crash, and after several challenges by Chambers' defense attorneys on everything from his admission to his mother not being present while questioning, Chambers went on trial for the murder of John Liebenstein. During the trial, jurors learned that Chambers told a fellow inmate at the jail that he was not going to get convicted on first-degree murder because the officer was negligent. He was off-duty, and he wasn't wearing his seatbelt. He also shared that he told authorities during an interview that he made up a story about a ghost sitting next to him during the chase, implying that he might use an insanity defense. Fellow inmates said that Chambers bragged about the chase, that it was the cop's fault, that he shouldn't have been there, and the cop was negligent. Chambers believed he would go to prison for the unauthorized use of a motor vehicle, but not for the murder. It was also explained that Chambers told others incarcerated with him that he had seen a car blocking the ramp, and he made the decision that he wasn't going to be stopped. He was going to go through that and continue. He said that if the cop wanted to be a hero, then he would die a hero. Chambers also told a fellow inmate that he made eye contact with the person in the car, which was John, who he said put his arms in front of his face before Chambers crashed into him. Chambers said he thought that was funny. I didn't attend the trial. I was, you know, I kind of kept abreast of what was going on, talking to our day shift. But I was, you know, doing my rotating shifts and, and you know, just they they took care of all of the trial stuff, they being, the, you know, the day shift and the administration. And, and, and then I remember um, going in when the jury was done. And I did go in for that, but it was like, standing room only just tons of people there to to hear that and then uh and then to hear that he was found guilty you know didn't bring him back but you felt a sense of justice had been served 
but yet <clears throat> that's when uh, it it kind of came full circle again. So I remember going out to the family's house and hugging all of the kids the day of it. Same thing at the wake, same thing at the funeral. And then it's like, here we go again. But I just felt, even though we had justice, um, true justice was uh, not being served because these kids are going to be without a dad forever. And to this day, when I see them now with their kids, and um, I just get emotional because those kids only know grandpa uh, from pictures and stories. So the trial took three weeks and on Saturday evening, the jury reached a verdict and contacted Jean. It was Saturday evening and had gotten a call then from, I think it was the victim services advocate that called me from the county and um, said that the jury had reached a verdict. And so I had like an hour to get back to the courthouse. So I went and it happened to be that um, a lot of my family members had come up for just the day. And so then a lot of my family came there too, along with some of my friends. Chambers was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In 1997, about a year after John's death, Jean set up an endowment fund in John's honor. The John Liebenstein Endowed Law Enforcement Memorial Scholarship is awarded to one student each year in Mankato who is pursuing a law enforcement degree. This scholarship also helps to keep John's memory alive and encourages those going into the profession he so loved. Chambers was the youngest person in Minnesota to receive a sentence of life in prison without parole and has filed several appeals since 1999. I don't think anybody my age should be sentenced to life without parole, Chambers says. I made a mistake, you know, cost someone his life, but this is a pretty big thing. Throughout the appeal attempts, the Minnesota Supreme Court has upheld the conviction and sentence. The latest attempt to appeal his sentence was based on two United States Supreme Court cases, Graham v. Florida and Miller v. Alabama. In Graham v. Florida, the United States Supreme Court held that a sentence of life without the possibility of release imposed upon juvenile non-homicide offenders constitutes cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth Amendment. The Miller v. Alabama case in 2012 held that the Eighth Amendment forbids a sentencing scheme that mandates life in prison without possibility of parole for juvenile offenders. The Minnesota Supreme Court held that Graham v. Florida doesn't apply to this case because it only applies to non-homicide offenders and does not apply to those convicted of homicide, and Timothy Chambers is not entitled to the benefit of the Graham rule. The Minnesota Supreme Court also stated that Timothy Chambers is not entitled to the retroactive benefit of the Miller rule in a post-conviction proceeding. Chambers' life imprisonment without the possibility for parole was upheld by the Minnesota Supreme Court, and they ordered he would serve the sentence as pronounced. 
But the U.S. Supreme Court would make its ruling retroactive, and in March of 2016, the Rice County District Court received a remand order. Chambers' mandatory lifetime sentence without parole had been vacated, and Rice County was ordered to re-sentence Chambers for John's murder. Chambers was one of eight in Minnesota who had the opportunity to argue the possibility of parole, one of 1,200 nationwide. For John's family, for this community, and for the Rice County Sheriff's Office, this was heartbreaking news. It meant that they would have to appear again and make victim impact statements one more time for sentencing. The U.S. Supreme Court came out with a ruling and said that you can't sentence a juvenile to life in prison. And so they said that he was going to have to be brought back for resentencing and so, of course, you're like, what are you talking about? This kid took somebody's life. He did it with intent. He knew it was a squad car. He made some very, some very not-so-nice things to his prison mates about, you know, how he, he took a cop out, and he bragged about it. And it, it. You know, that didn't sit well, especially when that gets back to the family. You know, they're like, this, this guy shows no remorse. And now you're going to have to resense him, and now he's going to have a chance to get out of prison. So I remember meeting with John's family again, specifically his wife and mom, and, and just seeing the range of emotions that went through there. All of my kids did victim impact statements. I just had them read the one that I did originally when he was sentenced. You know, I, I didn't feel at the time that I had a lot more to say, but they gave my my kids, my three kids, an opportunity to have something to say. And then there were also some of John's co-workers that made statements. Um, and that Troy Dunn was one of them, too, that, that had made a statement. Chambers, who was then 37 years old, walked into the courtroom full of uniformed officers and John's family and friends. I ended up going up and testifying at the hearing, and it was basically probably I would say more like a victim's impact and how um, it's impacted our department and and um, I specifically spoke about you know we lost a, a partner um, that we couldn't um, it it just changed it changed our whole field we we have a memorial with his you know badge on the wall at the sheriff's office so but it, it's it's not the same as him being there working with you, and um, and I specifically talked about him making those statements, the statements that came out of prison, and how he didn't have remorse, and and that um, I might have forgiven him as a Christian, but yet I do not believe he needs to be released from prison for what he did. He made a choice, a conscious decision. He could have stopped. He could have gone around it. But nope, he took out that cop. And and I said, no, his kids um, don't have memories of high school graduations, weddings, grandkids, all that stuff. Just take it away. And uh, so I said, and I got emotional up there too. I said, you... I, you don't deserve to be out here until you take full responsibility for what you've done and live with it behind bars without the freedoms of most Americans. Um, 
you know, and I, I, I said, I hope the judge gives you the maximum and that, you know, you never see the, the outside of a prison cell anymore. And, uh, so that was, again, another, it's just like, it's like opening a, a old wound again. And it was hard, it, you know, every time you, you think of what happened and, you know, this, this was preventable, um, and I know I remember the, his defense attorney talking about, well, the deputy could have got out of his car, could have moved his car and stuff like that. And I'm like, that, that's what, yes, that's what you're supposed to say. But no, all of this started because he, Mr. Chambers made a choice to steal a car and flee from police. And he needs to be held accountable. In May of 2013, more than 100 law enforcement officers, friends, and family of John Liebenstein turned out on a Saturday morning to dedicate 25 miles of Highway I-35 as the Deputy John W. Liebenstein Memorial Highway. The idea for the highway dedication came from one of the recipients of John's memorial scholarship. We wanted to dedicate that one-mile stretch of I-35 and County Road 1, the uh, mile marker 66 areas, John Liebenstein Memorial Highway, so that he would never be, you know, forgotten. And, you know, people would be reminded when they drive by that the people that knew him would look at it and say, oh, you know, now I remember John. And then other people would drive by and say, I didn't know who this John was, but I looked it up and heard his story, and I'm very sorry for your loss. So, but we ran into problems. Um, saying, no, you can't put it down on the interstate. We, we can't do that. It's too many signs, so we're just going to let you have the ramps. So we, uh, we planted a tree out there um, in John's memory, well off the interstate, down actually right next to the road right-of-way fence, per the request of MnDOT. And uh, we had a lot of you know friends and family and uh, deputies, partners and uh, firefighters, everything um, was were there for that dedication. And it was uh, just really, really uh, a positive thing to come out of something negative to help remember John's legacy here. With the U.S. Supreme Court ruling, Tim Chambers will be eligible for parole in 2026. It's so important for agencies and their leadership to always remember their survivor families to keep in touch, to make sure they know that their sacrifice mattered and that they won't be forgotten. And we have been fortunate that, you know, from Dave Schweistall on through Troy, we've been, you know, the, especially around the anniversary date, it's nice to know that they haven't forgotten either. They did a wall in one of their rooms that has a dedication to John and then to Terry Hansen, who died a couple of years before John. A lot of the, the people that John worked with have retired. And so you have this, you know, all these new people coming in and they don't know the story. And so that's a reminder then that, yeah, this does happen, you know, in our hometown. So we do have to be careful out there. Retired Sheriff Troy Dunn, he's kept in contact with Jean and her family every year since John died. You know, it's, I think it's too easy to forget about things that happen afterwards, you know, and that there's still family around. And Troy has been just fantastic about keeping in touch with us. Um, you know, he comes to visit at least once a year. 
And um, on the anniversary of John's death, he goes out to the cemetery. And uh, I know he visits with John's mother, too. So um, it's it's nice to know that we're still in, you know, people are thinking about us. And, you know, not that we need a daily reminder of what's happened, but just, just the fact that, you know, we're in their thoughts means a lot to me. And, um, you know, I think it does to the rest of the family, too. He's a great family man. I mean, I, I talk mostly about his, you know, wife and and uh, his mom but I mean he had a brother and sister and, and nieces and nephews that I you know would see regularly and John's brother when you look at him you, you could tell that you know they were brothers and you just see that uh, that just such a great person um, in their hearts and in their family and, and uh, it's uh, you hate to see anybody go through that but then it, it makes you always say why does it have to happen to a good guy or a good family and stuff like that? Why do these things you ask yourselves? But so he, you know, I mean, when when John died, that uh, that whole county, that community, um, all around Dundas lost lost. Uh, there's a big hollow hole there. So yeah, he uh, he made his mark in in a very short time and didn't get the chance to. Um, you know, be that great dad for his kids as they went through all of their different phases in their life and stuff. And that's just, it's, it's sad to see that. And, you know, obviously changed, changed many lives for forever because of this incident. So, and, uh, <clears throat> I know that I'll never forget him. John Warren Liebenstein was a hero. And it's not how he died that made him a hero, it's how he lived. With his steadfast dedication to his family, his dedication to his community, and unwavering dedication to his fellow officers. John didn't have to be on that exit ramp that day. John was an investigator, he wasn't assigned to patrol, and he was home on lunch break. Yet, he heard the call, and even though he likely knew none of the officers involved in that pursuit, it was coming into Rice County, the county he was sworn to serve, and he felt compelled to go and help his fellow law enforcement brothers. John most certainly saved lives that day, stopping Chambers from coming off the highway and going into the more populated areas of Rice County. Chambers made it clear he was willing to do anything and risk the safety of anyone in order not to get caught. He could have easily hurt or killed others along the way. John stopped that pursuit. John stopped the threat. And John gave his own life doing so. John Liebenstein was the second line of duty death recorded in the Rice County Sheriff's Office and is remembered each year in Rice County by the Minnesota Law Enforcement Memorial Association on May 15th at the State Capitol in St. Paul and at the National Law Enforcement Memorial in Washington, D.C. Thank you for spending the time to listen, learn about, and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten.
So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening.